0: There's certain things that I think novice investors sort of fall victim to, but some of these behavioral biases, even people that I've worked with that have been investing for decades still have run into these same challenges. So it's not like it's just specific to when you get started. I think these are things you always have to be wary of because we're literally hardwired to make poor investment decisions in a lot of ways.
1: Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Lewis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Louis Giannis. I'm the founder of WealthNet Investments. And today I have the greatest pleasure to interview Dave Keller. Dave Keller is a very fine investment analyst and I'm glad to have him on. He's the chief market strategist at stockcharts.com and the president of Sierra Alpha Research, where he helps investors minimize behavioral biases through technical research. He is the host of The Final Bar, the daily closing bell show on StockCharts.com. TV, and he relates mindful techniques to investor decision-making in his blog, The Mindful Investor. Dave is the past president of the CMT Association and was formerly a managing director of research at Fidelity Investments, and you can follow him at MarketMisbehavior.com. So let's go ahead and dive in. I have a lot of great questions to ask you, Dave. I was looking at your bio that you were... I knew that you were involved with music, but I didn't know like you studied music in college.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
2: pretty yeah, I was pretty, pretty serious
0: about it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: what instrument do you play the piano or?
0: No, I studied trumpet and voice in college. Trumpet and voice. Okay. Yeah, so trumpet you was my me. major instrument and then I ended up singing a lot. So yeah, I've always kind of tried to find ways to do music on the side. So I've played with a lot of community orchestras and then I sang with the Cleveland Orchestra Chorus for a couple of seasons when we lived in Cleveland. That's what I'm usually thinking about. But you're a musician too. You're posting pictures of you playing riffs and everything.
2: I've played quite a bit um, in different ways. Lots of different things. Lots of different types of genres from anything from really heavy rock stuff to jazz or country or whatever. Just put the charts in front of me and, and I'll have to figure it out and let's get it done. But I haven't really played much lately. Just having kids and running a business. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Where does right. music fit in? That's always the challenge.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I see you have a guitar back there. So I was going to
0: say it. And I randomly, when I'm not in a meeting, that's like, there, just like pull it out and the trumpet, you can't, I actually, I was just cleaning it. So it's over there, but I usually have the trumpet up there and it's mainly there. So when I'm doing something, I'm like, Oh, I should like pick up an instrument and do something at some point.
2: It's actually really creative. You know, uh, I think Einstein used to play the violin when he was between yeah. his thought processes. Yeah. So, so yeah. you're kind of like the modern day Einstein, uh, Technician.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's fair. I
2: I was actually really curious. How did you get from being in music and psychology and all of that into investing?
0: Yeah, it was really random. And what happened was I studied music and psychology at Ohio State. And I was really serious about music. So my plan was to keep going. And I mean, if you study music super seriously, you go to a conservatory, you go to graduate school, like you keep kind of going. And I certainly hit that point where I think a lot of mm. musicians do. If you study it seriously, is you realize to be really good, you know what it takes. But to be elite like the best, you have to like focus 100% of your time and just focus on being exceptional. And like I could never focus that much. I would get burnt out if I tried to do that much of it. Mm. And so I was looking for something that was a steady job <laughs> because all of my musician friends were servers at Bob Evans or doing something and then gigging at night. And I was super done with that. It was good money, but it would be super sick. Like you'd make a ton of money for a week and then you'd make no money for two weeks. Mm. And it was just brutal. And so I went for a good paying gig and found Bloomberg somehow ended up <laughs> interviewing at Bloomberg. And I was like, wow, it pays really well. They're willing to teach me about all this, like, great. And so I went to New York and I'd been in New York a couple times, but the chance to live there and then, know, do it. So I, I really knew nothing about the markets when I was hired there. And they would hire a bunch of liberal arts majors and teach you about investing. And you got to work for a bunch of clients that were really knowledgeable. So yeah, and then the music makes sense if you think about it, because it's very mathematical, right? And so there's a very left brain part of it. And so I think the technical part of technical analysis kind of related to that in a pretty meaningful way. I always relate it to looking at an orchestra score. So I was actually studying orchestral conducting. That was my area of focus at the end. <laughs> so ah. you're like conducting an orchestra, then you look down at a piece of music and it's just all these things. And it's all about patterns and it's about knowing the period of the piece and knowing what's probably going to come next. And so when I started analyzing charts, it somehow felt like I'd been training for that <laughs> as a musician, which was crazy. Absolutely. So that uh, was that... it. And then psychology, it's made perfect. Like it's when I realized you could study what people were thinking from an investing perspective, that made total sense to me. Like that just... The fact that markets would be driven by investor psychology, anything other than that would never make sense to me. Like that just speaks to the core of what I studied and what I thought about, so yeah.
2: It's really, really interesting. Actually, there are quite a few great technicians that have some musical background.
0: It's actually very true, and it's funny. I used to run the New York MTA chapter and it would be like the side discussion a lot of times. So there's like a jazz drummer and a vocal jazz singer, and all these things. And it was hilarious. We'd compare notes about the relationship. And, it, and it's absolutely right. There are a number of backgrounds that are well represented in technical analysis. Music and aviation are two that are. Oh yeah. Have a lot of like former military pilots and all of that kind of thing going around too. Yeah,
2: checklists yep. and all of that, and just the discipline of being able to go through and make sure you get it right. The concept of course correcting in the middle of flight, having a general direction, all those things tend to fit. It's funny that you mentioned this about music because, and not to belabor the point, but I was both self-taught on some instruments and also trained. So I played saxophone. I first started on the guitar when I was nine, and then I played saxophone in band. And then I switched to, well, I played electric guitar in jazz band, and then I played snare drum in marching band and sax in yeah. concert. So I liked to play different instruments. I loved yeah. rhythm. So yeah. I worked really hard to get into the snare because it's, snare is a, more difficult than some of the other instruments in terms of percussion. But I always felt like when I saw the concept of technical analysis, I always thought it made so much sense to me. Because you are looking at what was actually happening. And when you learn by ear, you hear relationships and intervals. And you learn how to quickly hear intervals and chords, like what's a major seven, what's a minor seven. You know what these things are. And then when you start looking at charts, you can pick patterns out better. Because you're like you said, you're trained to see relationships. And you might see some nuances that somebody else may not see as a musician. I really believe that. That's really interesting. That makes a whole lot of sense. So you wound up at Bloomberg, and then did you learn technical analysis there? Is that what you learned?
0: Yeah, so their basic strategies, they would hire about 40 to 50 people and bring you all to New York, and you did a six-week training course, and you'd learn everything. And so that's where they would teach you bond math and the Fed and the role of the Fed, monetary policy, and stocks, and options, and all that. And then you were basically thrown onto the help desk where you learned by having to answer questions that clients were running into, which was just an awesome place to learn because you would have these people that were successful investors asking you questions. So you were basically addressing the stuff that they couldn't figure out. And I mean, some of it was using the platform, but a lot of it was just a lot of great learning would happen about just the markets and why were they asking about this and why did they want to look at this a certain way? you know, what are you trying to do? And being able to ask them questions made a ton of sense. So I immediately gravitated to technical analysis. And then there was a guy, Rick Bensignor, who was the technical analyst at Bloomberg. And he had left there in the end of 1998 to go to Morgan Stanley. And Mm -hmm. so I happened to be there right at this time where there was sort of a vacuum right above me. So Mm -hmm. there wasn't a technical analyst. And so there seemed to be an opportunity to move up and join that specialist team. And so I studied really hard and started going through the CMT exams and everything. And then eventually a couple of years later, sort of got that role. So ended up being the technical analyst there. And it was one of those where the more I did it, the more it just made sense. And then it was also getting to like talk with people like John Bollinger and Tom Demark and those kind of guys, because we'd have their indicators on our platform. And I would ended up talking to them in the course of how we were tweaking things and how we were making things look. And so it ended up being a really cool opportunity. Yeah.
2: Mm, and then, so when did you become the president of the Chartered market technicians association? Was it when you were at Bloomberg or when you made the switch to fidelity?
0: No. So I went up to fidelity and that was in 2008. I was hired by fidelity to run the technical research team. And I joined the board of the MTA at the time in 2007, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up being vice president and then president at, in 2010. So 2010 to 14 is when I was president.
2: Got it. It's So interesting, because I was one of those members that got started really, really in the like 1990. I think I joined in 1989, something like that. And I got my CMT, but never really was in New York very much at all but like Phil Roth helped me out with the CMT and stuff like that. But back then they made it really tough. Like nobody wanted to sign anything. So I had to work really hard to get people to just to sign off on my papers, but I never really connected in New York very much. And in fact, I think when I met you, I think that was only the second time that I'd been to an MTA event, even though I've been a member for over two decades. So oh, that's it's very wild. interesting. I've been practicing all this time and no yeah. people around here, obviously. Yep. And it was so cool. And it's funny because when I went up to you, I didn't even realize like you were the past president. It's like your picture looks familiar. Oh yeah. I think you were on the newsletter. <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you, I've watched you on the final bar hmm. and I've watched how you go about your technical analysis. And I find it to be very disciplined and such. And I know that you're involved heavily in behavioral biases. Can you tell me what are the biggest behavioral biases that you find both professional and individual investors really struggling with?
0: Yeah. And your question, Lewis, I think tells the story, which is it's not just with individuals. I mean, there's certain things that I think novice investors sort of fall victim to, but Some of these behavioral biases, even people that I've worked with that have been investing for decades still have run into these same challenges. So it's not like it's just specific to when you get started. I think these are things you always have to be wary of because we're literally hardwired to make poor investment decisions in a lot of ways. And so you have to find ways to minimize their impact on your decisions. And the one that's most common, I think, is confirmation bias. It's a a classic one. And the name sort of describes it, right? The idea is I'm bullish on stocks. And so you start looking for information. And what your brain is actually doing is any evidence that confirms your bullish sentiment, you sort of mentally attribute greater weight to. And anything that disagrees with your bullish sentiment, you attribute less weight to it. And in the end, all you've done is confirm what you were already going to do. You made your decision first. And then you started gathering evidence. And if you think about it, that seems completely flipped, which it is, right? Hmm. If you're really trying to do this right, you should start with no preconceived biases, no preconception about what you think. You should just start gathering evidence. And then at the end of the day, what is the weight of the evidence telling me? And I think given this environment where we see the markets rolling over, while some of the moves day to day can be severe and sudden, you know, the fact that there have been clear patterns of rotation from an accumulation phase to a distribution phase, I think have been fairly obvious at times, right? I mean, you've seen all these signals that things are rolling over, but if you don't pay attention to that and just think I'm bullish, let me find reasons to be bullish. You can find reasons to have any point of view. And that's not the way to make money. That's the way to lose money. A lot of the times I've found. So with confirmation bias, the key is to make sure that you start with gathering evidence, You see what the weight of the evidence is, and then you make a decision. So I always talk about investing as evidence-based investing. And for me, that is primarily using charts. It's looking at price momentum, and it's understanding what the trends are and anticipating where the trends are most likely going. But it's focusing on the evidence first and then making the decision after that.
2: Mm. So I think one of the hardest parts is figuring out what you weight as actual evidence and yeah. what do you say is not evidence? <laughs> so uh, like based on the scientific method, like we could assign evidence to any variable that we mm. want. It could be the length of skirts or whatever. So
0: yeah,
2: I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that investors have general, but you'd mentioned something about professionals have the same type of, uh, you know, we all fall into this trap because we're human beings. When you look at the professional, like, you know, in Bloomberg, you talked to a lot of different professionals. When you worked at Fidelity, you saw a lot of analysts and stuff that had ideas. You've seen things work out, things not work out. What were some of the biggest aha moments that you saw working with other professionals that actually, would you say confirmation bias would still be the top error there?
0: It's certainly one of the top ones. If I would say, I mean, probably the top one for institutional investors would be overconfidence, which Mm -hmm. is this belief that you're unstoppable, that you have this solution that's going to work at all times. And it's very easy, especially again, we're sort of in this multi-year, many, many years long bull market phase. And I was told, don't confuse brains with the bull market, right? When you're doing well, you tend to attribute that to your skill as an investor. When you're doing poorly, you attribute it to bad luck. And that is a common mistake. And, and in reality, you have to remember that when you're doing well, there's at least a good component of that. That's luck. You're in the right place. You have the right setup and it's just working. And when you're doing poorly, some of that could most likely be attributed to something involving skill. And I tend to think of it in terms of like routines or how you're spending your time. Like there are things that you could do to probably upgrade your skill set. And I think for institutional investors, you're basically trained to be overconfident. You know, you're taught as a junior analyst to pound the table and insist that you're right you're not taught to humbly admit when you're wrong and move on, right? But following the Peter Lynch methodology, he would always tell you that you're going to be right five or six times out of 10 at best, which means your goal is not to be right all the time. The goal is to accept that you're going to be wrong a lot, and to make sure when you're right, you stay right and make sure when you're wrong, you admit you're wrong and you move on. And so I bucket that all in sort of that overconfidence mentality that you feel like mm-hmm. your routine is great, you're doing a good job, and either the market's working for you or it's not. And I find that people need to think, especially institutional investors, need to think about what's within their control and what's without of their control and focus on upgrading what is in your control. What can you improve on? What can you change that's gonna happen? give you a greater chance of success. And what is outside of your control that you can just kind of let go on your own, like what the market's going to do tomorrow, we don't know, right? none of us know. So you have to basically focus on what you actually can improve on and change.
1: If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your piece of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today
2: since your focus has been technical, Mm. I'm sure you've worked with a lot of fundamental people at Bloomberg, at Fidelity. What is your feeling about how fundamental analysts can incorporate technical analysis to help them remove some of these biases? What are some of the things that
0: you look for? So I have a great example. This At Fidelity, we had this event called the Two Minute Drill. And this is something that had been going on for decades. And it was from early Fidelity days where all the portfolio managers and all the analysts would get in a conference room. And the fact that That was the case tells you how long ago it was because Fidelity now running trillions of dollars. I mean, there are hundreds of people in that category now But at the time, it was literally like a handful of people in a room and every analyst would go around and would have two minutes to pitch any stock and they would have to throw it out. And it was a great learning experience because you were forced to summarize a very well-researched, very intricate investment thesis in two minutes. I mean, so you had to be tight. It's about earnings, it's about the management team, it's about this catalyst for growth. Like you had to just make it very, very like this, nice little sandwich of an investment thesis. And as we got bigger, we continued to do this two-minute drill a couple times a year, once a quarter usually. And one of the things I was able to do while I was there was to have one of my analysts at the meeting bringing up the charts. And what was funny is we, for a little while, would do some of the meetings without having the chart up, and people would just be talking about their thesis. Then we started doing these meetings where my analysts would put the chart of the stock up on the wall. And the behavior of everyone in the room started to change because (laughs) – if an analyst was pitching a stock and it was this, you know, obvious thing completely rolling over, you had to address that. You had to acknowledge, okay, for the last year, this has been an absolute dog. And that had to be part of your thing, right? You can't just ignore the fact that price is telling you something. And it was a great reminder, I think, for me, that price is not just an output of the process, which is what a lot of fundamental analysts think. They think, All I need to do is understand the earnings trajectory, understanding the company, and then it's going to work out. And I'm basically buying earnings. But you're not buying earnings. You're buying the price. Right. That's what you're actually getting exposure to. And so I think what technical analysis does is it reminds you that if you look at a P.E. ratio, both parts of that, the P and the E, can be analyzed and can be understood. And you can start to draw some conclusions based on that. And so I think that was an illustration of the value of thinking about the price and not just about whether or not this is a good company, but is it a good time to be buying this good company because of what the market's telling you? And I think Mm -hmm. combining that is a really, really powerful toolkit.
2: Wow. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I learned that lesson after the dot-com bubble. Hmm. When I first got into the business, because I was primarily a fundamental person early in my career, CFA, all that stuff, and placing valuations, and it was working great first two and a half years of my career. And then all of a sudden, all the value stocks that made sense to us were rolling over and going down and all these growthy names were going up. And we wouldn't own any of them. And It's funny, we lost a bunch of clients due to that. Our portfolios went down, Warren Buffett's portfolio went down. And then when it completely reversed, it's amazing. Investors don't come back with their tail between their legs saying, oh, I was wrong, right? When you were right, but with value. So I learned the lesson that you have to manage risk. And then you also need to understand that price will overshoot up and down. And even in the theory of valuation there's an element of it that is actually the risk premium, right? The premium that is based on sentiment. And that's the part I think that technical analysis helps you capture. It's funny looking at some of the notes from preparing for this meeting. I was thinking about all the different things that you probably looked at in your career. You've looked at every single indicator in the planet. You've talked to all these probably. different technical guys and stuff out of all the stuff that you've seen technically. What would you say are the most robust, meaningful things that if you were only going to look at those, that you would look at? Um, it could be, it could really be a concept. Question. It could be an indicator. It could be, yeah. I know there's a weight of the evidence, but if you could summarize it into maybe the top yeah. three or something like that.
0: No, very, very very good point. I just think that there's a theme with what I'm going to say, and it, it you hit on it with what, what you mentioned earlier. It's about risk management. I think one of the key benefits of technical analysis is risk management, because the chart will tell you when something's not working. And again, I think one of the best tools you have, especially if you're managing any sort of assets actively, it's not picking the thing that's going to go up tenfold, although that's great. It's getting out of things that are not working. And when I've found trading systems, especially long-term systems built for long-term investors, that's really, I mean, you you tend to make money on the down markets on a relative basis. Mm. The benefit you provide is that you're out of the markets that are not working and then you at least keep up with or close to keep up with the bull market phases. And overall, that ends up being a much better way to manage the downside risk. It's a much better way to manage the volatility and all of that. So for me, the techniques that I use are ones that help you to manage risk most effectively is what I would describe it as. So the most important thing I would say for me is just a simple analysis of price. And I wouldn't call it price patterns, but it's just, I find a lot of people when they get into technical analysis, they get really complicated very quickly. And I think for me, you hit on it earlier, which is I've spent most of my career working for fundamental analysts or fundamentally oriented portfolio managers. So I've been forced to use things that I can explain (laughs) very simplistically and have resonate with people that are not chart people. Right. And so I think this simple analysis of price. I mean, I mentioned that meeting where you just saw the chart was going lower, right? And there are a bunch of techniques we can use to do that using moving averages and other things to sort of identify the slope of the price. But in the end, I sort of bucket that all into a simple analysis of trend. Is this chart going higher or lower? And admitting when the chart had been going higher and is no longer going lower. Apparel retailers would be an example right now. Things like Ross stores and others that have just been this consistent uptrends. And then at some point in the last six months, you had to have recognized that The dynamics are changing and it's gone from an accumulation phase to a distribution phase. And so for me, recognizing that change in trend is probably the primary thing I would be looking for. And again, the indicators I would sort of bucket into that practice would be just simple analysis of price trends, looking at highs and lows, but also moving averages and knowing when things are breaking above and below a key moving average, which would help you understand just the overall trend in price. The second thing I would say, maybe my other answer would be relative strength, which is looking at the stock relative to a benchmark or relative to another basket of stocks. And one of the things I learned working for institutional money managers it was great that you were paid based on your relative performance, which is what most institutional money managers are paid off. It's your ability to outperform a benchmark. That's how you're evaluated. That's how you you deeply analyze your performance based on the stocks you pick and how they do relative to all the other stocks you could pick. And I find, especially for individual investors, you don't tend to focus enough on that relative game. And what happens is you do all this work analyzing the chart and you make a decision based on it. And what the relative strength tells you is, are you looking at the right chart in the first place, right? And so I think, especially when the market starts going down, you have a basket of stocks that are holding up and are allowing you to minimize your losses. And the relative strength line is what's gonna tell you that more than anything. So looking at that relative strength line, and you know, I was taught if you wanna outperform the S&P 500, you need to own stocks that are outperforming the S&P 500, simple as that. So mm-hmm. that allows you to key in on the stocks that are making relative gains and are helping you outperform a passive product. And that I think should be a key area of focus.
2: And you've mostly been in the stock world, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, yep. So if you look at the market today, and you kind of see what's happening this morning the market selling off what is your sense for the trend phase that we're in right now in the overall US equity market
0: yeah good question i think and the short answer is i think it's short term fairly negative and long term fairly positive is kind of the way i would balance it if you look at the short term charts and short term i would say like a 6 month to 1 year time frame so short term within the context of being a long term investor There are a lot of warning signs that I think we've seen, and they've been building up. And I think Mm -hmm. that I've been describing the last six months as a stealth correction. The markets can correct in three ways. They can correct in time, which is what you saw in September and October of last year. It wasn't really a big drop in price, but it was more of a sideways trend. You sort of hit a peak in September of 2020. You had about a two-month period where it was consolidating, and then November it broke out to new highs, and then continued on to this year. You can correct in terms of price, This is what we saw in February to March of 2020. This is a steep decline, very short time frame. but you gave up a lot of the previous gains and just lost a year's worth of gains in a month. But then you have a stealth correction, which is when the market's actually holding up or going up a little bit, but a lot of individual names are going down already. And so you've seen that in the last six months, where the S&P 500s made new all-time highs every month through September. The Nasdaqs made new all-time highs from September, but a lot of individual names are down 10, 20-plus percent during that same period. And I think the way you saw that is with uh, breadth deterioration, and that's market breadth, looking at the participants of those indexes. The index is doing one thing, What are all the stocks that make up those indexes doing? And a lot of the breadth indicators have been really fairly negative here in the last couple of months. From April, May on, they've all been rotating lower. And it shows you that the conditions are getting less and less constructive for the market. And what happens after that plays out for a while is at some point, price kind of has to give way and it has to, uh, you know, once people recognize that a lot of individual names are coming off, you sort of get into full risk off mode. And that's when prices can start to drop. And I think that's what we're seeing now. You're seeing pullbacks in the seasonally weakest part of the year, September through October. That's pretty classic in terms of when this sort of thing would happen. But if you look at the long-term charts, the long-term trends, they're still relatively healthy. And you see a lot of potential catalysts for future upside, right? I mean, the Fed is having to make a lot of changes, but overall still incredibly accommodative. And you see charts over the long-term that have pulled back a bit, but still over the long-term are still holding up just fine. And so I think that short-term weakness, but providing a pretty decent buying opportunity through year-end seems to make Mm -hmm. sense, I think from a technical perspective.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I've noticed the stealth part because that doesn't translate into portfolio performance for a lot of managers when you have those stealth corrections because the, a lot of the stocks that you own are not doing as well. Most managers will flatline or maybe go down in that kind of environment unless they're just holding the index. I noticed that some of the big names that were keeping the index up are starting to crack support levels. And that's also maybe a warning sign. So that makes a whole lot of sense to me. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me. I appreciate you giving me your insights. And I really respect the way you communicate technical analysis. And before we sign off here, how would you explain to the novice, somebody who doesn't know what technical analysis is, what it is and why it's helpful?
0: So I will come at this question from a perspective of psychology, because as you mentioned, I mean, that was what I studied before I got into investing and it it made sense to me. The idea that people behave in crazy ways and trying to understand that has been a goal for me for a long time. And I think for me, technical analysis gives you a framework for understanding what investors are thinking and how that thinking, how their emotional state is translated into stock prices you know i was taught as many did i mean i took one course in economics i took an honors economics class at ohio state and it was very much on market efficiency and talking about modern portfolio theory and those sorts of things and then when i learned and i think not just when i learned about investing but when i actually sat down with traders and i went to the floor of the cme in chicago or went Mm. to the merrill trading desk in new york if you had that textbook and then looked around you like there's no way that what you had been taught translated into what the market was actually doing it was absolute chaos and it was somewhat controlled chaos but it was still chaotic and you could tell that there were moods and you can tell that people were getting excited or nervous or panicking or euphoric or desperate and you saw how the market's moved and so for me it really it that immediately clicked that that was the game it was understanding where the crowds were going and trying to quantify that. And so charts for me are not a statistical form of analysis, they're a way of illuminating what a bunch of investors are thinking and what they're excited about and what they're nervous about. And so for me, it's a set of tools to quantify investor behavior. And I think if you're not looking at that, you're missing a huge potential input to understand how the markets evolve, how they do.
2: Great, that makes total sense. Okay, so how should people get to know your work? I know you could go to stockcharts.com and see the final bar, which you do a lot of great interviews on and yeah. do a market wrap on. And then you have is it marketmisbehavior.com? That's right. Are you, are you blogging on that?
0: Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, everything that all goes through my website if you go to marketmisbehavior.com. That's right.
2: Cool. All right. Well, go check Dave Keller out. And thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you soon.
0: Appreciate it, Lewis. Take care.
1: For the latest episode of the Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.